You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Blog Talk Radio. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? At counterracism.com, You can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Greetings. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, the cows context of white supremacy. Uh, this is Gus T. Renegade uh, looking for another fantastic show. Uh, constructive information on racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, and things uh, people can do to work against uh, the system of racism. Um, today's broadcast, very fortunate. I uh, had several people uh, tell me about these articles that were written uh, detailing how non-white people, black people in New Orleans during the whole uh, Katrina fiasco were uh, just being brutalized and some murdered and uh Several people were telling me you should really look at these articles. They're just, you know, incredible. There's some uh, videos that go with the articles as well. Uh, I was able to look at some of the uh, investigative reports, and uh, they were just, you know, br- well, I want to say brilliant, but detailing some really heinous acts uh, that went on uh, in New Orleans. And I was able to contact uh, the journalist who is responsible for these reports. Uh, and he was gracious enough to take out some of his time to uh, speak with us here on the cows. Um, the reporter, Mr. A. C. Thompson, uh, he works for uh, po- uh, ProPublica.org. Uh, these articles also were published in the Nation. They've popped up all over the web. Uh, there's some videos on YouTube. I have one posted. Uh, if you are checking this program out from Blog Talk Radio, you can see one of the YouTube videos uh, that has actual footage from the investigation that he conducted. But uh, Mr. A.C. Thompson, are you with us, sir? I sure am. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. It it is a real privilege uh, to uh, have you on the show here to go over your uh, just incredible work. 
Um, is there any way you could just share with our listeners a little bit of information about yourself so they have a better idea of who uh, Mr. A.C. Thompson is? You know, uh, I'm an investigative reporter. I've been doing this for more than 10 years now. I, I spent a long time working at Alternative Weeklies in San Francisco, California. And uh, primarily, I would say that my, my work is focused on, on human rights stories, whether those are stories about people caught up in the criminal justice system or whether those are stories about uh, the CIA's uh, kidnapping program. You know, so that's my, my interest in general. Okay, okay. Um, I guess before uh, we get into the specific investigation that you did into what went on during the whole Katrina debacle, um, are you a white person or not? <laughs> no, I'm white. Okay. Um, important information. Yeah, um, yeah. This uh, program, Context of White Supremacy, um, I have taken the position that we are in a global system of racism, white supremacy, and uh, the definition that I use for white supremacy is a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you feel that is a correct definition for white supremacy and that such a system exists? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really itching to, uh, to get into the reports here. I want to make sure I have your uh, permission to ask questions uh, related to uh, all areas of people activity around these events and uh, the system of racism, economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war. Oh, you, you can ask on everything. I'll tell you straight up, I'm not an expert on probably most of those areas, but but ask away, definitely. You know. Groovy. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that, that, that's covering a lot there. For sure, for sure. I, I'm not an expert on much of anything, so, you know, I'm, I'm still learning and uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to uh, get more details about these reports here. Um, I actually want to set the table for uh, our listeners here. Um, I, had, I was speaking with a admitted white supremacist some time ago, and he was actually in uh, New Orleans, and uh, we were talking about racism, and a non-white caller was on the line, and I was asking this white person, what would most white people do if it was announced at 12 midnight, all the black people would be rounded up and killed? And the white person said it would probably be accurate to say most white people wouldn't do anything. They would, you know, act as if they hadn't heard anything about this on the news, didn't know anything about it, quite regrettable, quite sad that it happened, but they really wouldn't do anything to try to stop it. And the non-white caller who was listening uh, thought this was humorous. She said, you know, that this should maybe be made into a movie. Uh, she she just found it uh, amusing. And I pointed out during the call that I did not find it amusing, that the image I had in my head is Katrina and mm. thousands of black people being stranded and helpless and nobody doing anything. That's the image that I had in my head, and I, just, I didn't find anything funny about it at all. And it really 
it was one of those moments where it really clarified that non-white people really don't take this problem of racism, white supremacy seriously. And as a result, things like what happened in or what you investigated, these types of things happen. And non-white people, black people, are frequently in a position of just being totally stunned, totally caught off guard, and in disbelief and ask, how can this happen? How can this happen? Uh, so I really want to ground this program in, you know, this is a system of white supremacy and these types of things happen. I don't want to say on a regular basis, but they happen. This is not the first time I've heard of this sort of thing. Um, hopefully as we get more details from Mr. Thompson, uh, people can call in with questions and that type of thing. But I really want to ground this in this is why I do this program, because these types of incidents should not happen. But unfortunately, this is the type of thing you should expect in a system of racism, white supremacy. In my view, I could be incorrect. Um, Mr. Thompson, if you could uh, share with our listeners what you were doing when the whole Hurricane Katrina thing first happened. What were you doing? What were your thoughts at that time in 2005? You know, at that time I was still living in California and I was still working at newspapers. And, you know, really my thought at the time was should I, uh, should I drop what I was doing at the newspaper and see if I could go do uh, emergency work there uh, at that time? That didn't, that didn't come to pass because what I, I – started hearing pretty quickly was that it sounded like there were too many, there were more than enough emergency workers uh, down there. And, you know, looking back, I kind of regret it. Uh, I kind of regret just not being there on the ground at the time as either an aid worker or or a, a journalist witnessing. On the other hand, one thing that, that my current editor um, has told me is he said sometimes, you know, after an event like that, it takes – time to really understand what happened and really reconstruct the events. And sometimes the worst place to be to witness um, a serious uh, atrocity is right uh, at center stage as it's going on. And he used the example of the Balkans for that and said, you know, I was in the Balkans during the wars and uh, it it was very, very hard to figure out what was going on as it was. And only with some time and distance did the true storylines become clear. And and for me, I think that was true uh, in doing this reporting. Hmm. Um, how did you find out about uh, these so-called white vigilantes uh, and some of the activities that I guess were underreported uh, during the Hurricane Katrina uh, episode? You know, for me, this really started with Rebecca Solnit, who's a author and historian. And she was working on a book about disasters, and she took the the concept of disasters pretty broadly. So she looked at Detroit as a city that had 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 an economic disaster. She looked at the San Francisco earthquake. She looked at Hurricane Katrina. And she said when she was on the ground uh, in New Orleans after the storm had passed, uh, after the flood waters had receded, that she was hearing these stories about this vigilante, this militia activity uh, in a, a mostly white neighborhood called Algiers Point uh, on the west bank of the Mississippi River. And she said, um, you know, I, I really don't know how to grapple with this. I don't know how to investigate this. It's um, not what I normally do, but it is the kind of story that you would do. So why don't you come down here 
and see what you could can figure out. And and what what I learned fairly quickly was that there were already pieces of the puzzle sitting out there. So you had Spike Lee's documentary, and um, one of the people who uh, plays a starring role in in my story, uh, Donnell Harrington, he was in Spike's movie, and he describes this whole scene in um, When the Levees Broke about being chased down by a group of white men and shot for no apparent reason other than his race. Mm -hmm. Uh, As well, there was a Danish documentary crew that had gone to New Orleans right after the flood hit, right after the storm hit, and had videotaped white men in that same neighborhood describing shooting people and describing hunting black men, essentially. And I thought, wow, here are two possible pieces of the same story that have been sitting out there waiting to be connected. Um, And we should see if they are, in fact, linked. If these guys in the video who are bragging about uh, hunting down quote-unquote looters are part of the same group of people that uh, nearly killed Donnell Harrington. And just how far did this sort of open season uh, go? Hmm. I wanted to point out for our listeners, in case anyone wanted to do additional research, uh, the documentary that the uh, Danish filmmakers did is Welcome to New Orleans. Is that correct? That That is right, and it's a really good, really good film. And, and uh, i got to give them a shout-out for uh, helping us and letting us use uh, excerpts from their material. Okay. Welcome to New Orleans. You all heard it. Check it out. And actually, if you uh, check out some of the video clips that are on the Internet, you will see bits and pieces from that documentary. And uh, it is... Uh, it's hard to say good stuff with the material that they have, but I mean, it's uh, it's incredible footage, incredible footage. And if uh, you want to uh, get more information and kind of attach some faces and see and live in color with uh, some of the things that we talk about during this program, you might want to check it out. Yeah, um, definitely. What, uh, or rather, when did you actually get down into New Orleans uh, and Algiers Point to begin your investigation? You know, I've been going, I've been going to New Orleans. Uh, fairly regularly now for two years, hmm. and so and so that you know I first was there uh, in the summer two years ago um, for this story, and that that was the first time I went down there. And you know at first I I wasn't sure that we had that much. I wasn't sure I wasn't sure that I'd be able to to piece it all together. And the more time I spent there, the more people I met. The more people I interviewed, the more I, I became convinced that that um, what we were what we were looking into was uh, a pretty big story and a pretty significant story that had been massively overlooked uh, by the by the media. And and I'll tell you, it's what one thing that that surprised me a lot is, you know, I have done a lot of stories uh, involving uh, the criminal justice system, involving um, serious crimes. I've done stories that helped get wrongfully convicted people exonerated. I've done stories um, that have implicated people in various crimes. Uh, And I was amazed at the number of people that I met who were willing to talk about crimes either as victims 
witnesses or assailants and to talk totally freely uh, about being involved in these shooting incidents, about their neighbor supposedly shooting somebody, about witnessing a shooting incident uh, from the Algiers Point vigilantes, for example, and the fact that the police had never interviewed any of these people, you know, uh, that was surprising to me. You know, it was surprising to me that, um, you know, Donnell Harrington could go on national TV and talk about what sounded like a hate crime mm. and that afterwards nobody would bother to go follow up and say, hey, can you tell me more about what happened or do you have any more ideas about who did this to you? You know, mm. uh, that by the time I went there, um, that had just basically been forgotten. Wow. Uh, I want to take this moment to, to point out um, words are very important. I don't, on this program at least, uh, I don't use the term hate crime. Would it be correct to say that uh, the incidents that you investigated and uh, Mr. Donnell Harrington and some of the other folks that we're going to talk about, would it be correct to say that the evidence suggests that these individuals uh, were victims of acts, violent acts of racism, white supremacy? You know, I I can't. I, I can't be inside the, the heads of the assailants and tell you why they did what they did. Mm. What I can tell you, what I can tell you is from the evidence that I've gathered, is all the victims that that I have been able to identify mm. um, were African American males. Mm. All the assailants I've been able to identify were were white males. So you know that and the things that people and for sure uh some of the things that i understand members of this white vigilante group to have said uh involve using racial epithets now i can't i can't i don't i can't really go be beyond that mm-hmm. basically for libel reasons oh, for sure. in ascri- in ascribing motivation mm-hmm. um but what i can tell you is um in the report in the reporting that that I've done it breaks down on on those lines just in purely the most factual ways and that looks very obviously to me that looks incredibly suspicious uh and and uh it would seem to point in that direction but I can't you know uh without having somebody confess to me and say this is why I did this or this is why uh this whole shooting spree occurred and I'm responsible and I did it say why I can what what the motivations were I can just say uh it looks very uh suspicious and uh, and to me okay so yeah I don't I don't want you to uh do anything that would get you in trouble or um to attribute motivation uh to anyone just based on the evidence that you gathered that's out there um you suspect it could be? Would that be uh, correct to say you suspect that it could be these crimes could have been motivated that, by racism? That would be correct. And okay. and I will tell you that, you know, people I interviewed in the Algiers Point neighborhood, which is a quaint little um, neighborhood of well-maintained old houses that's not, it's not all white, but it is largely white, hmm. um, said things to me that made me think that they didn't have um, – a lot of regard for for outsiders uh and made me think that they didn't understand very much about African American culture. So um you know when I interview a guy and he says, "Well, 
um, when we saw black men and they were wearing white T-shirts, we knew they were gang members because in New Orleans, all gang members wear white T-shirts. And so we knew that we needed to, um, uh, you know, treat those guys with hostility. To me, uh, that sounds like a very uh, fearful and, and very poorly informed person, you know. Uh, you know, this is New Orleans in the in the summertime, you know, and to to think that every every um, black man that comes uh, around who's wearing a white T-shirt is like a member of the Bloods or Crips, mm. uh, you know, to me is absurd. Wow, um, I'm kind of curious as to some of the comments that these people made that um made you feel that they did not have uh very much regard for black people um i know in in the footage that i saw uh and in the reports that i read of yours um and you know i'm i'm all about uh just being honest about what was said i have no qualms about uh the word nigger uh if that's what was said that's what was said uh, i think it's best to just go ahead and put it all out on the table, I saw or I saw and heard that word used a lot by people that looked like they were white uh, in your video talking, uh, gloating it almost seemed about what happened. Uh, could you, I guess, share some more of the things that uh, the white people that you spoke with said that made you feel that they maybe didn't have too much regard for black people? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing is that uh, interviewing two shooting victims, that, and that would be Donnell Harrington and his cousin Marcel Alexander. Both of them, both of them, definitely describe incidents in which people threw out the N bomb uh, repeatedly at them. You know, interviewing uh, a witness, which I just recently did, who was uh, somebody who was a witness to one of these incidents. She describes uh, the same thing. Uh, that that's you know one one part of it that makes me say oh well <laughs> that was one of the issues here. Another thing that makes me uh, you know that's a clue that uh, to what perhaps was going on. Um, another thing that sort of speaks a little more broadly to uh, New Orleans or speaks to to sort of how things break down in New Orleans and how things get discussed is that when I interviewed um, the the white folks in Algiers Point. And they were discussing these these days after the storm, and, and they would say, I would hear things like this. I would hear things like, well, you know, there was an evacuation center sent up in our neighborhood, and we didn't like it. We didn't like all these people coming over uh, to our neighborhood, and we weren't prepared for that. Um, you know, one person told me, I'm not a racist, I'm a classist. I want to live around people who want the same things as me. Another person said, um, you know, you could look at the, the folks who are coming to the neighborhood to be evacuated, and you could just look them in the eyes and see who the outlaws were. Hmm. Uh, another person said to me, you know, when I heard Ray Nagin say, um, you know, uh, the other – the other side of the city, on the other side of the river, is going to be underwater. And I'm urging people to go to the West Bank, go to the Algiers and Algiers Point areas. Um, this, this person from the Algiers Point neighborhood said, oh, I thought we were doomed. I thought we would all be killed. You know, I, th I, I thought that was the end of us. Um, you know, and of course, what's directly across the river from Algiers Point is, is the Ninth Ward. You know, and 
that makes me really wonder if they're, uh, you know, it gives, it gives you a sense of sort of how people in this neighborhood perceived folks uh, from other neighborhoods in a city which is majority African American. Mm. You know. Wow. And so um, and so so the first instinct isn't like, uh, you know. The mayor says uh, people should flee the floodwaters and they should come to higher ground on the other side of the river. What can we do for our neighbors from the other side of the city? How can we help them out? What can we offer them? The first instinct is we're all going to be killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and to me, that, that I don't think that that's how I would respond. But let me say that. You know, to me, that seems uh, very strange. But that was, how, that was re- a repeated theme that that came through in these interviews. Wow. Um, in your reports, uh, you were talking about Algiers Point and the white residents specifically in Algiers Point, and you talked about the siege mentality. Um, direct quote. Um, that the white people had in Algiers Point, and specifically um, the stockpiling of weapons and assault rifles, shotguns, handguns, uh, an Uzi. Um, I guess could you share with our listeners uh, more about exactly what this siege mentality um, entailed and, and just the amount of weapons that these people had and uh, just you know as much detail as you could share about that? Yeah, I mean, this is one thing that that tripped me out is that, um, you know, people in this neighborhood, white folks in this neighborhood, they cut down trees and they dragged uh, downed trees and scrap lumber and other things out into the roads to block off the streets so people couldn't come through there. And then they began patrolling the streets um, in vehicles and on foot, uh, armed with all kinds of weapons. And and one of the main people involved in this, uh, one of the, the organizers of this sort of uh, militia activity told me, he said, look, um, what we did is we went around uh, to the houses of people who had left and went in their houses and uh, found their guns and amassed their guns. And we, you know, whenever we could, we let them know that we were getting their guns but we went and got them. And then, uh, you know, after a day, we had about 40 different weapons. Um, and so, so they had this, you know, this cache of, of 40 arms, uh, shotguns, assault rifles, like you said, an Uzi. And um, as well, as I understand it, there were people coming in from out of town and, in fact, from other states coming equipped with their own arms and their own trucks to, to join the effort. And that is something I've heard repeatedly from people uh, who would know uh, for the last two years, that there was, this was not even purely contained to folks that lived in this neighborhood, but that there was a broader sort of paramilitary effort there with people coming in from outside to join this little army. Whoa. Um Wow, that's surprising. I mean, I, I made an effort to uh, read um, all of the different articles that you had on this story, and I didn't, I didn't see that report. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think it's not. I don't think it's in any of the the stories, but it's something that to bring up now. It's coming up more in more reporting I've been doing lately. 
Wow. I was actually going to ask because I have heard people say um, you brought up the paramilitary operations. I don't know if you're familiar with the Blackwater unit. Um, I've heard different stories, um, not substantiated, but just different stories that um, Blackwater um, was in that area and they too may have been harming black people, non-white people. Did, did in any of your uh, investigating, did you find anything uh, related to Blackwater? You know, I mean, I, I, I've heard a lot of things. I've heard things about Blackwater. I've heard things uh, about other about federal agencies. I've heard all kinds of stuff. But let me tell you this. I'll tell you this for sure, that there are several incidents um, that have been documented to a certain extent uh, in which the NOPD was involved in shooting civilians that I don't think have ever been investigated properly. And uh, you know, I just discussed one of these with a with a former police officer, a former NOPD officer, the other day, and there. Um, I think if somebody took a look, they would find at least three to four, uh, at the very least, three to four officer-involved shootings that have never been fully investigated from that time period, and uh, I my sense of the victims in all these shootings is that, that they were all African-American. Um, and, and, and so it's like these kind of things that lay out there and sit out there from this time period that don't get examined. And I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, in my reporting, there were several people who died of gunshot wounds in that time period who really uh, never got a serious autopsy. They never got a serious investigation of what happened to them. Um, and I believe that there's more. I, I don't think, you know, I reviewed more than 800 autopsies mm. uh, from the Katrina time period, and that was pursuant to a court order um, because uh, myself and the Nation uh, Institute's investigative fund, which helps support this reporting, um, sued to get access to those documents because the coroner didn't want us to review the autopsies, even though the state law for Louisiana says anyone who wants to read an autopsy, to copy an autopsy, is, is welcome to do so. And, you know, going through those documents, we found uh, five suspicious cases that had never been, um, never been dealt with, really. Uh, I, I think there's more than that. I think that there's probably at least another five, and I believe that a, a fair number of those involve shootings uh, where the NOPD was involved. And, and I'm not saying that because I'm a weirdo conspiracy theorist or anything like that. I'm saying that because, for example, um, two NOPD SWAT officers, uh, Jeff Wynn and Dwayne Sherman, discussed shooting someone to death in New Orleans Magazine and said, uh, we saw someone we thought was a suspected robber, and so um, uh, we decided to shoot this guy to death with a rifle and did. Uh, you know, so when – and I, I asked around NOPD with former and current NOPD officers, and I said, is this a tall tale or did this happen? And everyone said, oh, yeah, that happened. Uh, well, here's the problem. I don't see any autopsy in the documents that were turned over to me that matches the description of this shooting. 
I've never seen any documents to, to uh, suggest there was any investigation into this by the NOPD, uh, meaning was this uh, a appropriate action to take? Was this a justified shooting or was this not? Um, and you have it right out of the mouths of the cops that did it, that they shot this guy. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about that down there somehow manages to fall through the cracks. And, you know, it may turn out that uh, under close scrutiny that this was a reasonable thing to do. I don't know. But what I'm saying is that there are many of these incidents that have not been properly scrutinized by uh, anybody. Wow. Um, yeah, that I definitely want to uh, address uh, Frank Minyard. He's the uh, uh, autopsy uh, person who's in charge of autopsies uh, in uh, New Orleans. Um, and uh, just the, the broader pattern that emerged here in reading your reports in terms of the conduct of the enforcement officials and uh, the white individuals who uh, reside in Algiers Point, uh, even the uh, individuals who reported this uh, for local uh, newspapers, journals, magazines, uh, different uh, news uh, media outlets um, in terms of a broader pattern of, number one, either not reporting, not investigating uh, any of the incidents where these black people are being harmed, murdered in some cases, uh, and then the fictitious reports, because I believe I did um, read that in one of your reports, that a lot of the stories um, that came out of the whole Katrina situation um, that, you know, reported black people were doing this, black people were looting, uh, babies were being raped, a lot of these stories ended up being false. Is that true from what you uh, investigated? Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the interesting way that it, it's broken down, right, is that um, is that all, the, all these really lurid, really crazy stories about um, just horrible human behavior that we got uh, right after the storm, a, a lot of those have turned out to just be totally bunk. If, from, from what we can tell, and I read a bunch of different um, – a bunch of different interviews with medical personnel who worked at the Superdome. You know, from what we can tell, the Superdome was not nearly as crazy as uh, both Mayor Ray Nagin and uh, then Police Chief Eddie Compass were saying. Um, it, you know, it's just a lot of this stuff that you heard at that time did not happen. However, stuff that you didn't hear about, you know, uh, for example, uh, the, the death of Henry Glover, uh, who who I wrote about in his story, who was a guy who was um, uh, a 30-something African-American male who was shot on September 2nd, 2005, a few days after the storm hit. Um, he, you know, what happened to him was nobody's entirely sure who shot him, but we know that he went to the police for uh, assistance. The police, according to two different witnesses, didn't give him any medical assistance. In fact, they uh, physically and verbally attacked uh, the people Henry Glover was with who had brought him to the police seeking medical attention. And uh, the police then, and this is the NOPD, uh, confiscated uh, Henry Glover's dead body and somebody set it on fire. And by the time I enter the picture, I, I'm looking at an autopsy report of a guy who has been so burned up that his remains were put in five different body bags, that there was almost nothing left of him but 
uh, bone fragments and um, ashes and burnt flesh. And this happens. You know, the police are clearly involved in one way or another, and yet there's no news report, there's no investigation, there's no nothing until I come around and start start um, asking questions. And I'm a good reporter, but frankly, uh, you know, somebody with a badge and subpoena power should have been asking questions long before I came around. And and those are the kind of stories, you know, the Donnell Harrington story, the Algiers Point story, um, that I, I think have been overlooked that really are horrendous crimes that have been uh, almost entirely overlooked. Wow. Um, in reading your work um, in, in what you just uh, detailed uh, with Mr. Glover, um, Mr. Donnell Harrington, uh, and his cousins uh, that were with him, Marcel Alexander and uh, Chris Collins, um, there seemed to be a broad pattern um, that suggested um, that there was a lot of activity that could be uh, racist, white supremacist uh, acts of violence against black people. Um, would that be correct to say, you know, based on what you uh, investigated, that there was a broad pattern could suggest there was a lot of racist white supremacist activity directed against black people at this time? I mean, I think there's a lot of incidents that probably haven't been proper, <laughs> properly characterized in many ways. Uh, I don't think that there's ever been a full analysis done of what occurred when um, Sheriff Harry Lee, who was the sheriff for the neighboring county, um, barred uh, residents of New Orleans from coming over the Crescent City Connection Bridge, the bridge mm. that crosses the Mississippi River, mm. and barred him, barred them from fleeing a place that was underwater and coming to a place uh, that was not underwater and having his uh, deputies fire shots at these people. Uh, you know, to, to me, that, that's a, a serious official crime that you could uh you that really hasn't been properly discussed and properly analyzed and that people haven't looked at in in the race and class context that I think it should probably be looked at in um you know and I don't think even people have dealt with the fact that the people who were coming over that bridge for example uh were going from New Orleans uh from one on one side of the river to a neighborhood that is New Orleans on the other side of the river, and a guy from the next county over got mm -hmm. onto a road that is in New Orleans pro property that's within the city limits of New Orleans and barred people uh, from moving around within their own state or within their own city after their mayor had instructed them to do what they were doing. Uh, wow. You know, to, to me, this, this is a, uh, a crime, a human rights abuse of officialdom that it has never been properly uh, and thoroughly analyzed. And people talk about it, uh, but I don't think that there's been really the kind of scrutiny that it deserves. More broadly, were there, were, was there a broad pattern of, of racist activity during that time period? Uh, I think there was all kinds of activity that falls into all kinds of categories, but it's hard not to wonder when you see, um, for me, per, you know, when I see, 
the, the autopsies that look very mysterious to me, where people have a, a bullet in their head, where people are burned up, uh, where um, people have died of blunt force trauma to the head, and they're all African-American victims, uh, it's hard to wonder why these cases didn't get, uh, you know, one, what happened to these people. And in some cases, there are explanations that are non-sinister, uh, and in other cases, there aren't. Um, but it, it's, it, it makes you wonder what happened to these people, one, and two, uh, why has there been so little done to find out what happened to them? Uh, again, this is uh, Mr. A.C. Thompson um, conducted an 18-month investigation into uh, white vigilante activity in uh, New Orleans during the Katrina episode in 2005, uh, Gusty Renegade on the Cows. Um, uh, in one of your reports, uh, you were speaking with uh, a white person uh, in New Orleans who wanted to remain anonymous, and uh, she said that, uh, I'll just quote her directly, uh, my uncle was very excited that it was a free-for-all, white against black, that he could participate him, par- that he could participate in. For him, the opportunity to hunt black people was a joy. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a pretty tough statement. Um, did you? Was that? Were these types of comments? Um, was this the type of thing that you were hearing on a consistent basis from individuals that you talked to in terms of their feelings about what happened in Algiers Point with the white vigilante activity? Uh, there's sort of two, two sort of spins that you get. And, and one, when people are able to speak anonymously and they're able to, to speak more truthfully perhaps and, and more candidly, that's what you would hear. When people were speaking on the record, um, people were less likely, um, white folks were less likely to say uh, something as blatantly out there as that. And and so when you're hearing those stories, those are sort of, when you're talking to people um, for attribution, uh, they you know then people are saying things. Um, more in the context of outsiders, people outside my neighborhood. Um, we, we knew who the outlaws were. Some of these guys were just bad guys, um, you, know, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, so there was sort of a different, the very blatant, boiled down to it, this is about race, uh, this is about racism. Context came predominantly from people who from either hearing from the statements witnesses made or victims made or the statements that uh, people like that person made, the anonymous source, because that person was anonymous and could say, totally honestly, this is what my family members were telling me, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so does that, does that answer the, the, um. your question sort of that, that, you know, I think that there were uh, a, a lot of folks – who wanted to go on the record were not going to come go on the record uh, in blatantly racist terms. Mm. Um, well, I guess I would say in in viewing the video clips, um, both from uh, Welcome to New Orleans, 
uh, and from your own video uh, that is available if you go to uh, the Nation's uh, website. You can see the uh, video footage uh, from Mr. A.C. Thompson. He's narrating. Um, it seemed like there were a lot of clips of white people saying the word nigger and just being uh, very explicit uh, in how they felt about black people and specifically how they felt about the acts of violence uh, and terrorism, really, uh, against black people during this period of time. It did not seem veiled at all. They seemed very, uh, they seemed proud. They seemed yeah, proud. But, you know, that that material, the really, the really inflammatory material, that was mostly from 2005. Mm-hmm. And that was from the, the Danish guys got that. And I think, like, by the time I came there, um, people were more guarded, and they were hmm. they were more savvy, perhaps, and and so that stuff that they got was really raw. It was really immediate. It was right after everything had just gone down, um, and even then, if you get into the outtakes and you look at some of the the background video, um, it's not as candid as some of. It's not. I don't even think that that represents um, exactly what the mentality was or let me say that even even the statements made um by the vigilantes at that time which are very inflammatory are not as inflammatory as the things that i'm hearing from witnesses and from victims and the Hmm. things that i'm hearing from witnesses and victims are way more inflammatory uh, and way more disturbing and and then and and then like i said uh when i started interviewing and doing my interviews, the, the the members of the vigilante group, the 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 white neighbors who lived in Algiers Point, I think were more were more cautious about the things that they said, and and that's not you know they definitely told me some crazy things, but they were definitely more cautious. Hmm. What uh, if you could give us some examples? What were some of the things that the victims uh, were saying that you felt were um, a lot more harsh than than what is on the videotapes for the uh, or what's on the video footage for the uh, documentaries that are online. What were some of the things the victims were saying that were said? Well, you know, uh, the I, I just saw Marcel Alexander and uh, he he told me something that was pretty amazing, and he told me this story that I, I hadn't heard before, and he said um, that. So so what happened in that situation is Marcel was walking with his cousin, Donnell, and with his friend, Chris Collins, mm-hmm. and three African-American men, uh, and they're entering. And at the time, Donnell was a kid. He was 17 years old. Um, and they enter this neighborhood looking to get out of town. They're looking to get um, to the evacuation zone. They want to be bused out of town. They want to leave New Orleans. Their lives are wrecked. Donnell's house is trashed. Marcel's house is trashed. They need to leave. And they're walking through the neighborhood, and without any warning, somebody starts blasting them with a shotgun, right? And and the shotgun pellets hit Donnell in the uh, neck and the arm and the front of his torso and blow this huge hole in his in his. Uh, internal jugular vein in his neck. There's a huge hole in his neck. There's blood everywhere. Uh, he gets up, and the gunman shoots him again. And when that happened, um, Marcel and Chris ran off. They thought Donnell was dead. They thought he was going to die. And they ran off. They thought that the only thing they could do was save themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So they run off, and they get taken prisoner by 
this group of vigilantes. And uh, Marcel says that the way he and Chris um, survived is they told the truth. And they said, look, we're not looters. We're not here to rob your neighborhood. Um, Yeah, Chris has a backpack and there's stuff in it. But look in the backpack. Chris is a diabetic and he has his insulin pump in his backpack so that he won't die. Uh, And we're just trying to get out of your neighborhood. We're just trying to leave town. And he says um, the the vigilantes had guns to their heads, were intending to kill them, and said, okay, if you're telling the truth, we'll let you live. And if not, we're going to kill you. And uh, they open up the backpack, and, of course, there was uh, the diabetic supplies that, that they that Chris and Marcel had said were there. And so Chris and Marcel are now alive. Um, you know, Marcel also tells me that the, the men threatened uh, to tie he and Chris up and set them on fire. Mm. Um, you know, a uh, bunch of other stuff like that. I mean, it, it's incredibly gruesome stuff. And it's like, uh, I've been talking to to him for more than a year and it's like I, I I find him to be a very credible uh witness and victim and I find his testimony to be very credible because uh you know I've taken him photos repeatedly in video mm-hmm. of people and I said hey is this um is this the person who was in, was this person involved in in shooting you or a part of the group of people that hunted you down and he you know when he he has uh been very clear about saying, oh, you know, I don't recognize this person or that could be or whatever, but he has never, um, you know, it's, uh, he's never been, to me, he's been a very credible witness, you know, a less credible witness uh, might leap at the chance to identify someone, even if it was the wrong person, but Marcel has never done that, you know, Uh, and his statements have been remarkably consistent over all this time, you know. Wow. I wanted to point out uh, for the listeners as well um, the incident with uh, Donnell Harrington, uh, Marcel Alexander, and Chris Collins. Um, that is in uh, that story is in uh, Spike Lee's documentary when the levees broke, uh, and I believe Donnell Harrington himself is in uh, that documentary. So uh, if you are looking for other sources where you can uh, hear more about uh, these incidents, uh, that would be one. Uh, as well as Welcome to New Orleans. Uh, and you can, you know, read Mr. A.C. Thompson's uh, reports directly. They have a ton of information, and he has about, I think, five to six. Uh, is that correct, Mr. Thompson? Uh, different reports that you've done uh, on uh, these incidents. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, I'm very curious as to how uh, – oh, and I wanted to let the listeners know as well. We uh, definitely uh, will be taking calls if anyone would like to uh, ask Mr. Thompson any questions, uh, number is 347-215-6071. Mr. Thompson, I wanted to ask, uh, how did the white people, um, and just based on what I've heard, um, I'm going to reference these folks as suspected racists, um, just based on what I've heard. I can't prove it, but I suspect they could be racist. do you think that would be a correct uh, stance to take? That's fine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, how did these white vigilantes, uh, suspected racists, 
how did they respond to you uh, coming in to investigate what happened uh, during this period of time? You know, uh, people were people were generally, um, you know, so, some folks. I really had to press them to, to go on the record with me, and it took a, a bunch of different uh, attempts to get them to talk. And some people were very free about talking, and they were very open about talking. They were very uh, open to discuss incidents that were surprising to me. You know, one person, uh, this isn't in the story, one person um, described a, a shooting in which um, somebody was shot, to, an African-American male was shot to death uh, mm. in front of a grocery store, supposedly trying to break into this um, little corner grocery store. Uh, and just shot point blank dead um, in the early evening on one day. And the person who described this incident to me described it in great detail. And I put that part of it in the story. But what I didn't put in is uh, the the person I interviewed also named the shooter by name. Wow. And said, this is the shooter's full name. You know, I mean, it was like, in a lot of ways, people were very, very open. um, And that surprised me. Um, You know, they were like, definitely not as open as when um when the Danish crew had been there they were not uh they were not you know as crazy but they still they still would talk you know and they still would say things that i was surprised uh to hear you know that 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 surprised me wow did did you get a sense um did you get a sense that they were regarding you as though you were doing something that you shouldn't be doing or did you feel unsafe at any point um I'm, I'm just i'm very curious about that because i when i looked at your photo i was not sure if you're a white person or not and then i thought about it and i said oh yeah this has got to be a white person there's no way a non-white person could do this story um, <laughs> so uh, yeah yeah well so here's the thing is that you know for new orleans i don't really know how i read because like uh um you know i don't know what people i don't know what people were thinking um, I just I, I I told the truth, which is like I, I would tell people, look, I'm interested in the untold stories of Hurricane Katrina, and most of the stories that have been out there are about things that happened on the other side of the river. They're about the Superdome and the mayor and um, this and that, and and I'm interested in stories no one's heard, and I want to know what happened on this side of the river. And I would say, you know, look, I've heard some of these tales. And I want you to tell me if they're true. And I want you to tell me what really went down. And and people um, people talked, you know. Uh, at that time, I I generally uh, wasn't that worried. Nowadays, uh, in New Orleans, <laughs> things are a little different. The last time I went there, um, I was uh, I got a message. I was there with the TV crew, and I got a message. Um, from from one of the people I was traveling with from somebody in the Algiers Point neighborhood who said, do not come to this neighborhood. Uh, your lives are in jeopardy if you come here. Nobody wants you around. Uh, and, um, you know, basically stay away or bad things could happen to you kind of message. That wow. was, you know, a couple weeks ago. Wow. Wow. Um. I'm very and, and anyone who uh is in the chat room I saw we do have a couple of folks. Um like I said, 
give us a jingle if you would like to uh, ask any questions or make comments. Um, I did catch, uh, I'm not always paying attention to the chat room because I uh, cannot multitask very well, but I did catch some of the people in the chat room. Um, the term outsiders, uh, they enjoy clear communication, as do I, and uh, they would appreciate uh, if when you say outsiders, if you're talking about black people, if uh, you could use the term just black people as opposed to outsiders. And you know, you know, I'm using that term because that that's the term that's the term that was used uh, to me, and and I actually think that generally that probably means black folks, but I'm not sure that it means all black folks. I mean, part of it is that there is sort of a quirk of New Orleans, which is that. Uh, a lot of folks that live, people that live on that side of the river, on the west bank of the river, mm. um, do see themselves as a, a neighborhood apart from the rest of the city. And part of that is race, um, to, to some extent, but it's also, um, it also is geographic to a certain extent, um, I, I think. Because to, sometimes I would hear similar things from African-American folks that live in, in the Algiers area, which is right next to Algiers Point, which is um, more, more uh, African-American neighborhood. And, and they would describe uh, people on the other side of the river as well as being um, outsiders. But, you know, that's a term I was throwing out because that was the term, term being used. I'm just paraphrasing what, what I'm hearing, you know. Understood, understood. Um... I'm I'm very curious because uh, it's in several of your reports that uh, individuals, suspected racists, white vigilantes who practiced or who used violence, resorted to violence against these different black people, um, frequently justify their actions by saying, well, these people were looters, they were going to loot, they had already looted, um, the, the, the justifying their violent actions uh, and saying that these folks were looting. Uh, and I, I was not in the continental United States at the time of the Hurricane Katrina episode, so I don't have all the images of the people who sat around and watched this unfold uh, on CNN daily. Um, but the little bit that I did get was looters. That was the constant uh, right. theme, looters, looters, looters. The, the black people are looting. How much of an impact do you think uh, the coverage in the news, on television, of the looting, how much of an impact do you think that had on the behavior of these suspected racist white vigilantes and resorting to these you know, heinous acts of violence against black people? You know, that was a, a huge factor, and, and a lot of it that I would hear would be, um, I heard from people who were on the ground in New Orleans, New Orleans residents, at that time, that, that they were listening to um, local radio. And on local radio, uh, all kinds of folks were calling in, and they were basically acting as citizen reporters. But the problem was is that a, a lot of them were repeating crazy rumors that they had heard that were not grounded in reality. And so it became like, um, you know, this this total rumor mill augmented by, by modern mass communication technology. And so... Uh, people across the city are hearing the radio a lot. For a lot of people, you know, the radio might be the only source uh, of information that they have, because because you can have a battery-powered radio, and a lot of people are out of uh, power for their TV or anything else, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the power lines are down, and 
they're hearing all this insane stuff. And a lot of it is about looting. And a lot of it is about thievery and thuggery and atrocious atrocious behavior. Uh, and I think that, that people were terrified. People were, were scared. And, and that's Im, you know important to remember, definitely, that, that fears were stoked very heavily. And uh, like I said earlier, a lot of those fears were stoked also by public officials who, to my mind, um, were not very careful about the things that they were saying. And also, I mean, if you read the Senate report on Hurricane Katrina and you read the NOPD's after-action reports, it's clear that there were major um, communication problems within the government of New Orleans and that at the highest levels, the government was spreading rumors, innuendo, crazy stories uh, that were not true and that that was part of the problem. I mean, that's not just me saying that. The the Senate (laughs) said the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that that is is a thing um, that played into all of this. Was, was hysteria and fear. And there also really were, you know, um, not to excuse anybody's um, bad behavior, but there were very serious things that occurred, very serious crimes that occurred, you know, during that time period that um, would put people on edge. And I think, like, when a government collapses, and effectively New Orleans government did collapse at that time because um, most communication methods broke down. And when that happens, effectively, government ceases to exist. Um, people are fearful when that happens. <laughs> you know, it doesn't justify what we saw in Algiers Point, but it's one of the factors that helps to, helps to understand, not, not the only, but one of the factors that helps to, to explain what happened and why it happened. I was curious about the because uh, I read some of your follow-up reports, and uh, December 25th of uh, 2008, uh, you reported that uh, New Orleans Police Department uh, that they were beginning to look into uh, some of the incidents that you reported uh, in terms of uh, these acts of violence in Algiers Point, uh, suspected racist white vigilantes um, shooting black people. Um, in your report, uh, you said that the uh, New Orleans police officials stated that they were unaware of this violence uh, prior to your investigation. Um, I'm I'm just very curious, based on the evidence and material that you have gathered, do you think the New Orleans Police Department was not aware of what was happening in Algiers Point? prior to your investigation? You know, it's hard to figure out what what the NOPD is aware of and what they're not, not aware of. I mean, what I can tell you is that there definitely was at least one uh, NOPD officer that lived in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I believe a couple lived in that neighborhood and stayed through the storm. And I would think that they would be aware of what was going on whether that message would get to their higher-ups or not, I don't know. Whether they were sympathetic with what was going on or not, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, so many things happened in that time period, and there was such a horrible loss of life that um, I, I, I do think that a lot of uh, 
people within the city government, within um, the NOPD, probably didn't know uh, about about these activities. Um, with the the Henry Glover, I mean, even with the even with the the Henry Glover incident, in which the NOPD was clearly very involved in some way, um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who didn't know any within the force who didn't know anything about that. So it, it's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, to me, what's a little baffling though is like, look, Donnell was in when the levees broke. He discussed this happening to him uh, on national TV. He thought something would happen then. Who was at the premiere for for the movie? Like everyone in New Orleans, you know, everyone in New Orleans was there. You know, all kinds of powerful people, law enforcement people, city government people. Like, why did everyone think that, like, yeah, we shouldn't track this guy down and figure out what happened? You know, he was there. Donnell was there. You know, like, you could have gone and, like, started an investigation that day, you know. And, like, I don't know. Why did that not happen? I don't know. You know, but it's um, bothersome for sure. I know uh, in in uh, reports that I saw, uh, the white vigilantes suspected racists, uh, Nathan Roper and Wayne Janik, um, they both indicated that the enforcement officials, uh, New Orleans Police Department, uh, had said something to the effect of, do what you have to do. Um, it's chaotic, looting, uh, do what you have to do. Um, and, and saying that, uh, in so many words, the police authorized them to, you know, handle their business. Um, did you get uh, that feeling when you spoke with them? Uh, did they indicate anything of this nature to you that the police, uh, in some way, shape, or form, told them, you know, defend your your territory? We, you know, are having a lot of problems. We're swamped. The government has shut down, as you said. Defend yourself as best you can. You know, that's what that's what they've told me. Um, mm. That's what those gentlemen told me, and um, I, you know. That that's what the, that's what they said, and you know one thing that's that's interesting to note from that time period is that uh, a lot of people had their weapons confiscated by the NOPD during that time period. There was a massive lawsuit brought by the NRA over that, um, but those guys didn't, and those guys uh, never complained I mean, the, about having their guns taken away, the and white so that. Went. Yeah, the white, the white people of Alger's point. And so that makes you wonder. Now, how high – my point is how high did that go? Did it go beyond, like, a, a, a few cops in that area, you know, lower-level people? Did it go higher than that? I, I, like, give sort of granting permission to that, to um, the militia to carry out its activities? I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that, you know – if you go over to the other side of the river and you talk to uh, people uh, in the main, uh, at people who were who spent did their tour for Katrina on the other side of the river, a, a lot of a lot of off, those officers really don't seem to know about this stuff. And I would bring it up, and they would just be baffled. They would be surprised by it. On the west bank of the river. I, it's probably a good a good chance that um, officers, at least some officers over there, knew about what was going on and um, turned the 
turned uh, a blind eye to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, another thing I heard from the white residents of Algiers Point was that the that the the um, curfew that was in effect at that time just didn't apply to them. That that they didn't have to worry about it, and that makes you think that there was a certain amount of uh, permission granted by an OPD. But again, it's not, I, that's that's a thing that I've heard, and it's a thing that people have told to me. But um, it's still somewhat hard to totally pin down. Um. Uh, and, and you reported you have, I guess, continued to follow um, as the New Orleans Police Department and now the FBI um, are looking into this matter. Um, on February 2nd, 2009, uh, you wrote another article uh, questioning um, the New Orleans Police Department and their investigation. Uh, and New Orleans police officials uh, stated that there was a lack of information uh, about these incidents. Um, how do you feel about them saying that there's a lack of information, they didn't have anyone contacting them with leads? How do you feel about that, and does that make you feel that they're really interested in pursuing justice in this case? You know, my my sense w- was, like, look, all the names are here. Why don't you go knock on these people's doors? You know, why don't you go talk to these folks? Hmm. Um, you know, I think that the sense from NOPD was, we want a victim to come forward and make a complaint and tell us uh, what happened. And, uh, you know, for for Marcel and Donnell, they had already um, tried, you know, at least Donnell had already talked to the police and tried to make something happen, and he felt frustrated when nothing did. So um, he was kind of waiting, uh, you know, he felt like the story's out there um, and, you know, these guys, if they want to talk to me, they should come over here, you know, but uh, he wasn't in a rush to go uh, knock on their door, you know, and that was that was the thing. Now, should he have gone and, and taken, his, um, taken his incident to the police for the second time? You know, you can make that argument, you know, and, and that would be understandable, but I think that was part of the thing is NOPD was like, you know, we need someone to to call and and make a complaint. And Donnell was like, look, I already did that. If they want to do something, they know my name. They know the whole story. They should just come find me. You know, they should come give me a call. You know, tell them they can, you know, when I, he talked to me, he's like, tell them they're welcome to call me up, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't know what all that was about, you know, at some level. To your knowledge, uh, the suspected racist, White vigilantes Nathan Roper and Wayne Janik have New Orleans Police Department. Have they made any effort to contact them or any of the other you know, white people? At that point, I don't think so. Now, I don't know. I, things are happening on the ground there um, with law enforcement from what I hear. And I hear vague different things, but I think there is some movement there. Um and I'm not entirely sure exactly who or exactly, um, you know, who has been interviewed, who whose doors have been knocked on. But I would not be surprised um, if there's been progress made uh, from the last couple of dispatches that I've done. Hmm. Do you, 
Um, you also reported the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation. They're also looking into uh, possible civil rights uh, and violations. And uh, in your story, you were specifically uh, focusing on the conduct or misconduct of New Orleans police uh, officials. Um, to your knowledge at this point, has anything happened uh, on the federal level uh, in any of these incidents? You know, I mean, like I can say, like uh, like I reported about the, the FBI, the FBI is definitely, definitely, and they've said publicly, we are investigating um, the incident with Henry Glover, and they're interviewing people, they're talking to people, they're trying to figure out what went down. Um, and it's uh, the criminal section of the Civil Rights uh, Division of the Bureau that's looking into that. Um, you know, what you can infer from that is that the cases that they do, uh, a large number of them are deprivation of civil rights uh, by law enforcement agents. Uh, a smaller number are um, come under the federal hate crimes laws. Uh, you know, that should give some clues about about what they might be looking at with the Henry Glover uh, case. Hmm. Um, again, I'm going to get ready to check uh, the phone line here. I want to give out the number uh, to any of the folks listening in. Um, 347-215-6071. Uh, if you want to call in, uh, Mr. A.C. Thompson, uh, pro publica.org. Um, in terms of when I first read this uh, report and you were talking about how the uh, white people suspected racists, white vigilantes in Algiers Point when they were uh, collecting all these guns. Um, actually, I even want to go back to what you, you mentioned earlier. You said there was a, a confiscation of weapons in New Orleans during the whole Katrina fiasco, you said specifically that the white people in Algiers Point, uh, their uh, stockpile of ammunition was not uh, part of this seizure. Whose weapons were confiscated uh, when this went down? You know, I, I don't know for, you know, exactly who, who uh, did. I, I can tell you that I know hundreds uh, of hundreds, if not thousands, of weapons wound up in a warehouse because they had been seized and that there was a case filed um, at that time in 2005 uh, against the government of New Orleans uh, over this. And this was a huge issue for the NRA. I don't, you know, Breaking it down, I don't know who exactly whose guns were stolen and how it broke down on racial lines or anything like that. But I can tell you, um, it was not a complaint that I that I heard in that neighborhood at all. You know, it was not something um, that that people in Algiers Point complained about. Wow. Wow. So I mean, you know, the the breakdown as for like what neighborhoods or or um, anything like that, I don't know. Hmm. Um, to to go back with the with the uh, collection of uh, arms, um, the immediate thought that flashed in my head was when uh, President Obama was elected in November, and the immediate skyrocket of 
arms sales, ammunition sales, uh, record numbers, uh, unless I've been mistaken. Um, do you remember this, uh, what I'm yeah. talking about? When, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, uh, and I was thinking, my gosh, uh, could this type of thing happen again uh, if there was a storm? Uh, could this happen again, and, and could this happen in any area of this world, not just restricted to New Orleans, but if there was a storm in, I don't know, New York, if there was a storm in uh, Virginia, if there was a storm in uh, Orlando, could this sort of thing happen again uh, where the looters, the looters, and the white people immediately feel feel, feel fearful and uh, it's open season on black people. You said that people from outside of New Orleans were, were coming in and uh, – getting involved, according to reports that you heard. Do you think this sort of thing could happen again and, and could happen in any area other than uh, New Orleans? You know, I mean, I, I don't think, it, I don't think uh, yeah, I wouldn't confine it to New Orleans. I think you could see similar sort of dynamics emerge in, in a lot of cities. Now, I think New Orleans has deeper, more entrenched problems than a lot of a lot of cities. And like, by that, what I mean is that New Orleans is uh, New Orleans clearly has a, a serious, serious problem with racism, a deeply, deeply entrenched problem with racism. I've been in a lot of cities. I've been in many, many places in the South, and I honestly feel like um, for as beautiful as New Orleans is, for as great a city as it is, it also struggles uh, mightily um, with with racism in more so than some other southern cities probably um definitely uh i you know would it happen in new york i don't think it would happen in the same way but i think you know i i don't know i don't i don't know that it would happen in the same way in new york i don't know that uh you know i i i, I couldn't see it but i could see um similar dynamics developing in in other places for sure Hmm. Um, you said you feel like uh, New Orleans specifically has uh, far worse forms of racism, white supremacy in that area. What do you think it is about New Orleans that makes it uh, makes the racism there that more insidious um, that this sort of thing could happen? Well, I mean, I think it's also partially that there are a whole host of of like incredibly deeply ingrained. Uh, problems there. I mean, there's the fact that the government, uh, Louisiana governments have an incredible history of being ridiculously corrupt, you know, from the the parish level to the city level to the state level that, you know, it's, it's a cliche, it's a joke to talk about corruption in Louisiana, but it is an ongoing and, and huge problem there. And, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, it is, you know, New Orleans is, um, even in the best of times, plagued by a very serious crime problem, by deeply, deeply entrenched poverty, um, and, you know, sort of, these sort of uh, problems that, that have never been effectively addressed, you know, um, it, it almost you know, shockingly unaddressed. It's definitely shockingly unaddressed. You know, right now in New Orleans, uh, 30% of the city is abandoned or blighted. 
you know, and that apparently is not uh, doesn't seem to be a problem for uh, you know no one no one outside of New Orleans has even noticed how devastated the city is. Um, however, I will say that it's just like look, I just came back from from Richmond, Virginia, which is not wow. which is a, another southern city. I, I was also just in uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, and I just honestly, and maybe it's this is purely anecdotal, and maybe this is just my experience, um, but the sort of uh, racist things that I hear in Louisiana, I feel like are, in my experience, uh, more persistent and more extreme than the things that I, I hear and witness in some other states, southern states. And I see, you know, I see big problems in those states as well. I mean, I see big problems in northern states and western states as well, too. Um, but in, in Louisiana, I feel like uh, every time I visit there, that was a lot. Some, somebody, somebody tells me something that just blows my mind that I think is like, wow, I really cannot believe that, that I've just heard this. You no know? limit on resources. Wow. Uh, 951, I'm sorry about that. 951, uh, do you have a question or comment? Hello, yes, I do. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Uh, I was just uncertain if uh, you were able to hear me on the air at the time or see my call in the queue. Uh, Mr. Thompson. Hey. Could, oh, could you speak up? We're losing you a little bit. Speak up, please, sir. Uh, Mr. Thompson. Hey. I had a question regarding uh, if you ever came in contact with uh, non-white people that amassed guns or weapons. Uh, not from during that time period? Yes, that's correct. During uh, Associated with Katrina? Yes, directly. No, no. Okay. And I, yeah, not not in my experience. But that's also not been what I've been researching. Okay. I was just curious as uh, the individuals that you came in contact with in Algiers Point were white, correct? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just a question. And my other question, uh, Gusty Renegade, you covered earlier when you spoke about outsiders potentially being code for black people. Oh, yeah, someone in the chat room type. I don't. It might have been you. I'm not sure. Oh, I don't. I don't uh, know. Suspect oh. victim of racism. But. Oh, okay, okay. Did you have another question or comment? Um, you, you guys can keep going. I had some more, but I. Oh, feel I, free. I, I kind of got sidetracked. You can keep going, and I'll, if you don't mind, I'll kind of nudge in if that's okay. That's a okay, sir. We will. Uh, I'll ask a question, and uh, then if you have one or three, uh, feel free to hop in. Um, I there was a question in the chat room. Hello to everybody in the chat room. I generally cannot uh, look at the chat room directly while I'm talking because I can't multitask. So I do see you. Thank you for uh, hanging out with us, supporting the show. I make an effort to uh, catch your questions when I can. Two that were in the chat room, uh, Mr. Thompson, do you feel that the incidents that happened uh, where the white vigilantes uh, suspected racists, do you feel this was a class issue? or race issue, and I guess, uh, at least for me, I would need you to explain what you mean when you, when you say class. That's kind of difficult because you didn't use the term, but I don't, like throwing, uh, I don't like throwing that word out and not having a definition to it. So uh, if you could tell us if you think it was a class issue or a race issue and what you mean when you use the term class. You know, what, I mean, 
that was that was one thing that was said to me by Vinnie Purvel, one of the the white vigilantes. Is he said, "Oh, you know, I'm not a racist. I'm a classist. I want to be around people uh, of my. Um, I want to be around people who want the same thing um, that I want." And I'm I'm assuming that he's talking about people that m- earn uh, a similar amount of money as he does. Um, people that uh, belong to some something that you would call the middle class, although that's a fairly vague uh, and somewhat meaningless term. Um, that, you know, that's what he said. And that's what he told me. Um, I, you know, and I'm just going to have to say that, you know, that's, that's an explanation that he gave. Um, what uh, other people told me, you know, they used, uh, other people use terms like outsiders. Um, they use terms like outlaws. They use terms like um, nigger. Yeah, they use use terms like uh, people from uh, across the river. You know, and and so there were lots of different ways to describe it. With me, people generally didn't were not like super direct about what they were saying. You know, there was with me as opposed to uh, the earlier interviews and the actual incidents. People tended to be um, somewhat. Uh, guarded, somewhat coded in the way that they describe things. Um, so did you, uh, I guess it, from what I read in your reports and the video footage, I saw white people, suspected racists, um, saying directly, uh, the anonymous person that you spoke with, hooray, right. this was an opportunity to attack black people with impunity. Um, did you hear anyone say, Yay! This is an opportunity for us to get poor people. Did you hear anyone say no. anything like, "Oh"? Cool. No, that was not. That was not. Um, that was not really. Part, that was not part of the conversation. Aside from from Vinnie Purvel throwing that out there, you know. Okay. The uh, I think it's the same person in the chat room. He wanted to know: uh, Do you think uh, this is speculating? But based on your investigation. Do you think the white people in Algiers Point uh, could have been motivated to attack black people uh, because of a fear of white genetic annihilation? And uh, do you know what white genetic annihilation is? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, it is a theory. Uh, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, uh, she has a book called The ISIS Papers. Uh, her theory is basically that uh, the white phenotype is genetically recessive and that white people who practice racism, white supremacy, are motivated to do so because if white people had sexual intercourse with non-white people, uh, the offspring would be Barack Obama. He is a non-white male. Uh, that if this happened uh, in high enough numbers, uh, you would no longer have individuals classified as white. Uh, the skin com- uh, skin complexion would be very dark, and you would end up uh, with lots of non-white people. Uh, that, in a nutshell, is white genetic annihilation. Uh, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing does a much better job, much more thorough. Uh, she's a very educated PhD, third-generation physician. She can do a much better job uh, of explaining her theory than I, but that's it in a nutshell. Um, do you think the white people in Algiers Point could have been motivated uh, by white genetic annihilation to attack these black people? You know, that I can't, I can't 
you know, I can't speculate beyond, beyond you know, laying out um, what what I've gone into here. You know, that that's a, um, probably I can't I can't really can't really weigh in on that because it's not it's not something that came up in my conversations. And you know, for me, I I just need to stick pretty much to what what people said fairly directly directly to me and what inferences are pretty clear from from that so i don't know on that one uh mr mr thompson i have a question is that okay uh, yeah. Gus? help yourself sir all right thank you sir at the beginning of the show you agreed that uh white supremacy exists the system of white supremacy right and as it is based upon the mistreatment of non-white people would it be accurate to say that the individuals in algiers point the white individuals in algiers point we're promoting racism, white supremacy. You know, and this is this is just uh, I'm asking this question because um, in your video, I mean, we have footage of white people talking about directly mistreating niggers, and uh, you told us a story about a black male who was shot repeatedly with a shotgun. I mean, just a question. You know, my my situation is is that. What I have to be careful about the things that I say about people that I've interviewed, about people who appear in my stories, just because basically um, going very far beyond what I've reported and making um, real direct assessments about their motivations, about what they did, um, beyond what, what I can document opens me up to be sued for libel and that has not happened to me but but I don't want it to what I can say is that clearly the effect of a group of white men shooting uh, a succession of african-american males the result the result of that <laughs> is clear is clearly um, a, you know a white supremacist outcome you know without a doubt and would I mean, you say, does that does that make sense to you? You understand what I'm saying? Is that is that um, in these kind of times when you do these kind of stories about people, uh, you can quickly get embroiled in um, a three million dollar lawsuit for five years um, because of something you say about them on the radio. And so I just need to be careful about that because that's happened to people I know. You know. Oh, I understand, sir. The the power of words. I understand. Uh, in your observation while you were there in New Orleans, uh, would you say that the people who were more capable uh, were white? Like the white people were very much more capable than the non-white people in uh, securing themselves, uh, making sure they could live on a day-to-day. I mean, I understand it was chaos, but would you say that the white people during that time were very much more capable? You know, I mean, in... I, th- I think it's like that that varies from varies in a lot of different ways. I mean, um, you know, it's like in that neighborhood in Uptown that are, are comfortable white neighborhoods. Um, yeah, that you would see a definite disparity, you know, you would see a definite disparity with say folks from the lower ninth ward, which was wiped out, you know, um, and, and just for context, in the Lower Ninth Ward, are most of the people living there non-white, black, or? Yeah. Yes, they are mostly black. Yes. Okay. Yeah, almost entirely. 
Okay. Okay. Appreciate that, sir. Um, Anything else, Gus? Uh, I was curious. Um, Mr. Collins, uh, Mr. Glover, uh, Mr. Harrington, uh, these are all black males. Um, do you think this story uh, could have happened if Darnell Harrington and uh, Mr. Glover, uh, Mr. Collins, if all of these people are white, do you think this story could have happened? Not like this. Not like this. No, I mean, what I think is that if you had uh, a string of a young man shot and they were all white, that that there would be an entirely different deal. And and if you flipped it around and you had um, uh, the male residents of a predominantly black neighborhood uh, barricading their neighborhood and um, shooting white men who walked through their neighborhood to get to um, an official rescue site, that what, wouldn't ha- what would happen would not be um, a sigh, uh, amnesia, nobody paying any attention, but what would happen, and, and Donnell said this the last time we talked, what would happen would be the place would be stormed uh, with extreme force by uh, the local government and that, <laughs> that it would be a bloodbath. That's what would happen. You know, hmm. and I think you know that's to to me the way it would go down. Why do you think that is? <laughs> you know, I, I think that there, you know obviously there's a double standard for how, uh, for for uh, how these kind of crimes get perceived by in this country, and that and that's why that that would be. You know, uh, Mr. Thompson. Right. Uh, do you, Mr. Thompson? Uh-huh. Do you believe that in the system of racism, white supremacy, that white life is valued much more than non-white life, and that's why this would pan out totally different if it was white people getting shot by black people? Uh, systemically, yeah. Okay. And uh, over the time, uh, a couple months back, I've been looking at um, different incidents of violence during Hurricane Katrina, and I'm not certain if it was you that uh, disseminated this information, but I I read somewhere that a white person actually had uh, mercenaries or soldiers that were Israeli brought into New Orleans to defend uh, where this individual lived. Um, I'm not certain, again, if that was you, or have you heard of that story at all, or that information? You know, that wasn't me, and I, I I don't know about that. Okay, okay, just a question. And and another tidbit for the listeners, um, Blackwater USA um, has a a newsletter that I had been subscribed to um, in the months before Katrina. And I remember when Katrina was happening, an email was sent out uh, calling for police officers and military personnel that were on the Blackwater payroll, you could say, to be prepared to ship out. And uh, apparently, and I could be incorrect, and I encourage everyone to to, uh, to search this information to see if it's correct, but Blackwater hires um, individuals that have duties in which um, they have, they're required to carry a gun. So their normal pool of hiring people is uh, ex-military or current police officers. 
And I remember a news, uh, an email going out calling for people to come and volunteer and be prepared to go to New Orleans. Um, I tried looking for that email in my email accounts and I couldn't find it. If, uh, if I do find it, I'll forward it to you, Gus. And if any of the listeners want to see that email, they can contact Gus. If you find it, sir, I will uh, – there's a comment section for every show. I will okay. attach it to the comment section, so that way anytime someone comes to this show, the information will be right there. Uh, it will either be a link, or if it's something I can copy and paste, I'll just copy and paste it so it will be right with the episode so that anyone who uh, checks this episode out in the future in the archives, bam, they'll have the information. That would be pretty white. <laughs> <laughs> try to be, try to be. Um, Mr. Thompson, many of, uh, or I'll say some of the folks who check out my program, they, they really get on me to make sure that I get suggestions in terms of what should be done. Um, what do you think should be done, uh, number one, about this incident, uh, or incidents rather? What do you think should be done about these incidents, um, just in your view? I mean, you know, for for me this is the thing that you're you're talking about uh, – responses on multiple different levels. I mean, uh, the very direct response is that there should be an adequate, genuine, thorough law enforcement investigation. I mean, that's that's one prong. You know, I think the another prong um is uh shows like this and actually discussing what really went on and excavating the truth uh, of what really went on and letting people know uh, that the stories that they heard from Katrina in a lot of ways are very different than what happened and bringing, uh, shedding light on this uh, on this incident and, and on the broader context. Okay, so uh, I want to make sure I'm accurately uh, restating your suggestions um, that it would be correct to have a genuine, thorough, uh, investigation of what took place and an effort made to disseminate information about what happened so that more people are aware of these incidents uh, and more people can uh, push others uh, to investigate what happened so that uh, these these problems can be ad- addressed in a correct manner. Would that be accurate? Yeah, exactly. And, and like, let me be clear that it, it's, you know, to me, at, at a certain level, um, there hasn't been the sort of truth commission that you need for uh, Hurricane Katrina to really explain uh, a lot of what went down. I mean, let, let me explain uh, one last thing, and then I need to, to run, unfortunately. But, um, you know, uh, New Orleans buried 74 people uh, with no names, unknown victims of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and to me, you know, that there's uh, – that basically, look, um, I'm not convinced that adequate effort was put into finding the families of these victims, mm-hmm. finding out who they were, finding out how they died, uh, any of that. And to me, it seems very strange, it seems very disturbing that um, that in this era, with DNA testing, with incredible forensic science – uh, that we have to hear about all the time on CSI, that you could have 74 people who simply basically disappear and are never identified. And there are a lot of things about Hurricane Katrina like that 
that have never been fully explained um, and uh, that have never been fully reconciled. Wow. Wow. Um, I guess if I could give one question in before you go. In light of the fact that uh, your reports, you have revealed that there uh, seems to be a lot of evidence that would indicate a complicit involvement of New Orleans police officials in some way, shape, or form, uh, even the uh, person in charge of autopsies, Mr. Uh, Frank Minyard, and um, who knows, uh, who would be responsible for this sort of investigation uh, to do a thorough, uh, sincere, and unbiased um, kind of investigation in this matter? Who would be responsible for that? You know, you know I, and I've got to say, I've interviewed some really great uh, New Orleans police officers who are really genuine, sincere, motivated, and competent. But I don't think that the NOPD is the uh, optimum body to do an investigation like that. Uh, I think really um, to do that sort of investigation, you're talking about the, the federal government um, to do a very serious thorough probe of this. Wow. Okay. I don't uh I don't wanna don't wanna hold you up. Uh do you have other plans? I know it's Friday and you're on the East Coast so it's gotta be getting late there. Uh I definitely appreciate you taking time to uh call in the cows, sharing lots of information on what happened, this tragedy uh in New Orleans. Uh, again, Mr. A. C. Thompson, uh ProPublica dot org uh, all these reports are available online. I have one of them in the description uh, for this episode. If you just uh, look up, it should be titled uh, Katrina's Hidden Race War. If you click on that, it will take you to the story. You can read it. And there should be links uh, within that article to all of the other essays that uh, Mr. Thompson has done. Uh, but, again, I want to thank you. Uh, if there's anything uh, that's coming down the pike in the future related to this story or other work that you're doing, if you'd like to pass that on to our listeners, that would be great as well. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. We will definitely keep an eye out uh, for your future work, Mr. A.C. Thompson. Okay. Um, yeah, I uh, very much enjoyed this. Very constructive information. Um, as I said, I was not actually in the continental U.S. when Katrina went down, so I missed uh, kind of all the live stuff that was going on every day um, and just coming back and um, – back of the bus and uh tracy brown two victims of white supremacy uh black people both of them told me about uh this story uh mr ac thompson's work uh both of them said uh, you got to check this out this is uh incredible stuff he's detailing how white people just want a rampage uh attacking black people uh in katrina i went checked it out and i uh, was able to track him down and he was willing to come on the show so i'm real happy a little bit of teamwork with the non-white folks. Uh, Tracy Brown, she's about to snatch her master's uh, back of the bus, continuing to do uh, constructive work to replace white supremacy with justice. Uh, he actually helped out the uh, the cows. He was able to construct a uh, Facebook group for the cows. Uh, if you look at the show page, um, if you click the ho- if you're listening to this program on Blog Talk Radio, if you click the host link. Uh, It says Victim of Racism. If you click that, you'll go to the show page. There's a link uh, for Facebook. All you have to do is click that and bang, you'll be on the Facebook group for the cows. You can sign up, join the group. Uh, If you have any requests for guests that you think should come on the program or questions that you would like to ask a specific guest, um, you can put it there. I try to check it regularly. Um, I don't take criticism. 
stop that. I had to rescind that because it's been my experience that non-white people love to criticize and talk bad about non-white people, and I'm not encouraging that. Uh, no non-white people should be criticizing. Really, nobody, white or non-white, should be criticizing other non-white people. Uh, if you don't like what that person is doing, don't think it's correct, do something yourself. Um, if you don't feel the program, this particular program is constructive, invest your time and energy in something that you think will be productive in the system of racism, white supremacy. Go right ahead. I, I am a non-white and a black person. It sucks being black in the system of racism. <laughs> for sure. For sure. But for I must sure. say that this program is uh, has been very productive for me in my life in uh, collecting useful information that I can better uh, counter racism. Um, this specific show, for me, is a, is a clear example of how helpless non-white and black people are in the system of racism. You have uh, white people telling black people in Katrina to get to an official, uh, well, I forget the correct term, an official evacuation zone, is that correct? Uh, I believe so, sir. And you have other suspected races starting to shoot black people on the way to where other white people tell them to go. It's just like, what's going on? Uh I'd say for all non-white and black people that we should be prepared for justice to not be, we, we won't see justice come out of this specific situation of Hurricane Katrina. And the only way we will ever see justice in terms of Hurricane Katrina and all other gross acts of mistreatment across the planet would be to do what the cows is, counter the system of racism, white supremacy towards reaching a system of justice. Mm. But... Has it been your experience that uh, non-white people, black people, non-white people, that they feel that Hurricane Katrina is a really gross example, a gross and explicit example of how helpless non-white people are in the system of white supremacy? No, it's pretty sad. The most, the most I've seen non-white people or black people uh, look at Hurricane Katrina as a, an example of our helplessness is when white people, such as Mr. Thompson, uh, speak about, quote-unquote, the injustice that black people and non-white people face. Um, as consistent with the system of racism, any time I've observed a non-white person uh, specifically pointing to the example of Hurricane Katrina and explaining it in the context of white supremacy, uh, it hasn't been very productive because, unfortunately, black people... I mean, in the system of racism and white supremacy, Mr. Thompson agreed that it was correct that white life is valued more than non-white life. Mm. And uh, that plays out in and of itself. So I haven't seen too much or too much activity or action on the part of black or non-white people to suggest that uh, Hurricane Katrina showed our helplessness. Mm. Even, even during Hurricane Katrina, I was in the continental United States. Um, I was in Seattle, Washington, not too close to New Orleans, but I remember feeling that, I mean, no one's really paying attention. I mean, uh, hmm. there was a, it was on the news all over the place, but in terms of what's happening to black people, that wasn't very, uh, wasn't talked about too much. I, I spoke about it with some people, some black people and some non-black people who were non-white, and uh, I was told that I was depressed and that I spoke about this <laughs> too much. But, uh, Wait a minute, you said... They said that you were depressed, and what now? I spoke about the system of racism. I spoke about racism too much. I didn't. Spoke, not wow. But it wow. sucks being black. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
if if you could compare, I don't know where you were in the world when uh, so-called 9-11 happened, uh, do you feel non-white people and or black people, do you feel that they spoke about what happened with 9-11 more than what happened with Katrina or about the same? Oh, so much more. There were times when uh, you could hear a pin drop. I, I was I was also in Washington State. Mm. I'm a bit south at a, a boarding school. Uh, white people are awesome. <laughs> a missionary boarding school where they got niggers like myself and uh, they pay for us to go there. But I remember they had a... Uh, they had a, a bunch of non-white people from different areas of the U.S. Uh, some were from New York. Uh, there were some from down south, a few from Oakland. I myself am originally from Southern California. And there were times when you could hear a pin drop during uh, times when they would gather us together and play uh, and have the, just news playing for us in a, in a chapel sort of setting. And so they'd have this big screen and they'd have news reports playing. And, I mean, people were quiet. And, yeah, it was... Uh, much more, much more focused on 9/11 than what happened in Katrina. Hmm. Another, another thing I encourage uh, the non-whites listening to the show uh, to do is check out a book by a suspected racist called Akil Collins. Uh, he wrote a book called My Jihad, and it spoke about uh, 9/11 hmm. and uh, suspected racists planning it out and having it premeditated. Hmm. Can you give us the author again, please? Akil Collins, I believe it's spelled A-U-K-I-L, uh, Collins, C-O-L-L-I-N-S, okay. and uh, yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah, un- unfortunately, I uh, have to agree. Uh, I've had similar experiences uh, with black people and non-white, non-white people on the whole in terms of uh, Katrina. Um, just kind of seemed like they were upset for a little while. It was something for a little while, and then moving on to the next thing, no big deal. Um, I uh, I don't know. I, I really I thought uh, that was going to be something. I thought that was going to be kind of a catalyst for uh, getting non-white people, black people especially, uh, yes. to be much more focused and, you know, really trying to get our act together and uh, trying to pay attention to what's going on and, and realizing how messed up things are for black people in the system of racism, white supremacy. But uh, it seems I was uh, quite mistaken. Uh, that didn't seem to happen. I don't even I don't even really hear it mentioned anymore. I was I was telling someone my thoughts about uh, the curious case of Benjamin Buttons and how I feel that film illustrates. Uh, black people really have no resonance, no thought of Katrina at all uh, because the people that I know watched that film didn't think there was any level of racism in it at all. This film is set in New Orleans during the whole Katrina fiasco. People watch the film, they end up having a connection to Brad Pitt. No connection at all to the black people who were drowned, shot by these white people in uh, Algiers Point, no thought at all. And I even brought this up when I was talking to black people, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. And I'm like, this had just happened in our life. This didn't happen 20 years ago. This was just on the Oprah Winfrey show, I thought. Uh, white people are awesome <laughs> in terms of getting emotional attachment and putting it on the, the white people or white individuals suspected racist. Very good at that. Very good at that. Phenomenal. But, 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's pretty sad that non-white people across the board I've experienced don't really question uh, that that book I, I mentioned called My Jihad. Mm-hmm. Be- I read it before I understood the system of racism, white supremacy. But I do recall trying to uh, get other non-white people to read it, and it was extremely very difficult. Extremely very difficult. Hmm. I, I mean, more racists were pushing, or more suspected racists were were uh, promoting the story that we had a quote-unquote terrorist attack. But uh, hmm. we don't really question. The Curious Case of Benjamin Buttons. I need to watch that film, sir. Very interesting. I... Uh... I have not been able to finish up my Pulp Fiction film review because I've been working on uh, different shows. Uh, did the show, had a show this past Wednesday, had to do work for this show today. Uh, Mr. Tim Wise, as long as he's still down, that'll be Monday at 11.30. Uh, that's Pacific time, Monday morning. That'll be 2.30 Eastern. And then uh, Bill Ayers uh, will be on Wednesday at 2.30 Eastern, uh, 11.30 a.m., uh, Bill Ayers uh, was in The Weathermen. Uh, he's now addressing racism, white supremacy. He just wrote a book about white supremacy. Uh, he was also involved in a lot of uh, controversy during uh, Mr. Obama or President Obama's uh, campaign. Uh, people saying that uh, he was friends with a terrorist and all this other stuff. So he'll be by on Wednesday. So I haven't been able to uh, finish up my counter-racist film reviews, but I, I want to write about. Uh, the curious case of Benjamin Buttons, because I feel that's uh, pretty saturated with racism, white supremacy, and uh, illustrates how well uh, white people are able to skillfully uh, get non-white people to emotionally connect with white people, even fictitious white characters, uh, and totally disconnect from authentic black people, victims of white supremacy, who are suffering. Uh, that's on multiple levels uh, in, Benj- in the curious case of Benjamin Buttons. And, uh, yeah, hopefully that'll be down the road, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Hopefully that'll be down the road. Also, make, uh, make sure you check out nonwhitealliance.wordpress.com. Lots of constructive information. In fact, that is where I first caught wind of the work of Mr. A. C. Thompson. Uh, video was there. Uh, some of the clippings of uh, the antics that these suspected racists in Algiers Point uh, were carrying out uh, was at the Non-White Alliance, uh, that blog. So make sure you check that out, nonwhitealliance.wordpress.com. There was a lot of uh, use of the word nigger. Mm. Uh, by the suspected racists in that, in that I strongly suspect these individuals were, were practicing racism. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, so what are we going to do to counter the system of racism? What can we as non-white people do? Because that's the only way this is really going to stop. I mean, uh, in Katrina, Rwanda, Sudan, I mean, anywhere there's non-white people, black people, we're pretty helpless in the system of racism. So how are we going to going to end the system of racism. How are we going to counter it, sir? Uh, my four suggestions, they're on my blog. Uh, number four, become as precise and refined as possible about how you use words, especially if you are going to talk about racism, white supremacy. Uh, I certainly do not claim to be an expert at this myself, I'm still learning and still refining my tools and how 
I articulate the system of racism, white supremacy, but we need to become much more effective uh, in how we use words, particularly if we're going to talk about racism, white supremacy. And this is something really everybody, white people and non-white people, can do this because if white people became more accurate with their use of terms in talking about racism, white supremacy, that would have a constructive effect. And non-white people, many of them, would mimic the white people. So if you had white people uh, using non-white suspected racist, uh, no longer using terms like ethnic, minority, other, that would have a constructive effect. It would trickle down, if you will, to the non-white people. Uh, number three, being suspicious of all white people. This is critical in a system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, as Mr. Thompson spoke about frequently, the white people were speaking in so-called coded terms uh, about black people, using terms like outsider and things of that nature. So if you're in a system where white people who practice white supremacy, their primary method is deception, you really got to be on your toes with being suspicious that any white person could be a racist white supremacist. Uh, and really this is at the crux of, uh, I don't want to say my problem, but my concerns with Mr. Tim Wise, who admitted to being a racist white supremacist on a previous edition of The Cows. Uh, I am suspicious of Mr. Wise. He has admitted to being a white supremacist. I suspect he is not practicing so-called anti-racism. I suspect he is practicing white supremacy. Uh, but be that as it may, Tim Wise, nobody else is above suspicion if you are white in a system of white supremacy, and that is a logical stance to take for victims of white supremacy. Uh, number two, no sexual intercourse with white people under the system of white supremacy. Um, just brings up a lot of problems. Uh, most importantly, it has been my experience, non-white people really lose the ability to think in a business-like, logical, truthful manner about white people when they are engaged in sexual intercourse with a white person. Uh, it just becomes very much a personal thing. Uh, they can't certainly can't be suspicious of the white person that they're having sex with. Uh, I, I have just seen that it has uh, a plethora a plethora of adverse consequences on the non-white person every time. I can't even think of an exception to the rule ever. Everybody that I know of, uh, it has not had constructive results. Uh, and the evidence shows non-white people have not been able to successfully replace white supremacy with justice and engage in sexual intercourse with white people. We should try something else. Number one, no mistreating non-white people. Non-white people really need to get that in their head. Um, I don't even say no, no being violent with non-white people. No mistreating non-white people. Non-white people are subjected to far more than their fair share of abuse and mistreatment anyway. Uh, we, we frequently, all of us worldwide, are struggling and suffering Non-white people should really make every effort to not mistreat another non-white person for any 
reason. Even if that means, hey, I just don't have contact with this person, that would be a step in the right direction uh, because there would be no mistreatment and there would be no opportunity for escalated conflict amongst non-white people. Those four things, if we could just do those, you don't have to listen to my program. You don't have to send me any money. Uh, you don't have to read 5,000 books or anything. Just commit to doing those four things. Even if you could just do two, that would have an extraordinary effect on replacing the system of racism, white supremacy, with justice. Um, do you have any suggestions uh, for anyone who, who might be listening in in terms of things they can do, suggestions on how to go about the business of replacing white supremacy with justice? The four things that, Gus, you just mentioned, I definitely suggest, strongly suggest to all non-white people. I strongly suggest that they listen to the Cows radio show. Uh, there's a show specifically with uh, Mr. Neely Fuller, Jr. I'd encourage all non-white people to listen to. Also a show with Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. I'd encourage all victims of racism to listen to. And read their two books. If there's any books you read, I'd definitely encourage victims of racism to read those two books. Uh, Dr. Welsing has authored the ISIS papers, and Mr. Neely Fuller, Jr. has authored the Code book for short. Um, there's links to get those books on your on your cows radio page is that correct sir uh if you check out the programs that both of those individuals uh when they appeared on the cows the, yes there are links to both of their books the book should be pictured all you have to do is click on the actual book and it will take you to a site where you can purchase the book or you can go to uh mr edward williams counter racism.com and you can get a copy of uh, mr fuller's book there as well uh proceeds sir yes sir and uh just again those those four pillars are Four suggestions, I think, if non-white people took those upon themselves, we would make a leaps and bounds towards a system of justice. Um, speaking on words, uh, Mr. A.C. Thompson used words very, very well. I was just listening to him. He's a white man. I mean, yeah. hey, you, you shouldn't uh, expect anything less, really. Adept <laughs> <Depth> at warfare. <laughs> I mean, really, I'm, I'm laughing, but, I mean, you know, this is – this is serious. I mean, that's uh, at the end of the day, words, words, and words. Uh, Mr. Tim Wise, very skilled uh, in the use of words. Uh, really, I think if you listen to all of the white people that have been on this program, uh, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, uh, Dr. Martin Kevorkian, uh, Mr. Michael Bradley, um, even Pharaoh Winfrey, admitted white supremacist known as Pharaoh Winfrey, um, White people tend to be pretty skilled uh, in how they uh, put those nouns and verbs together. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's not trickery. That's not genetics. That's, you know, something simple that, hey, I am a black person. I'm not the most informed person about anything. Uh, but, you know, I, can, I have made improvements uh, in the way that I speak. Any non-white person can do that. And, and really it's more just about paying attention to words, how you use words, and really paying attention to definitions. Um, if I wanted to get more specific, uh, Dr. J.R. Harvey, uh, another white man, a professor at Cambridge in England, said on the program Wednesday, definitions are very important. Uh, and, and you really want to watch when people begin to substitute metaphors for definitions. As he said, very dangerous. Uh, you can, can really play with people and move their emotions around. And you really haven't clearly expressed what it is you're talking about. And white people are extraordinary with this, uh, being able to use words in a very clever manner, throwing terms out that never really get defined. 
Um, just if, if that's one thing that you, you really want to try and work on if you're talking to white people, make sure they're not tossing out any terms that don't get defined. If, you, if they're going to use the term racism, make sure you got a definition for that. If they're going to use the term class, make sure you got a definition for that. If they're going to call you a segregationist, make sure you get a definition for that. And, Oh, excuse me, sir. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. You're, you're, you're all good. I, see, I do the same thing. I do the same thing. I end up snickering uh, when someone says something uh, in conversations. I do the same thing. Um, but, yeah, just, you know, make sure that you get a definition uh, on these terms. And specifically, I got this from Mr. Edward Williams, Counter Racism Network. Uh, I asked them, I am codified in this, what do you mean when you say segregationist? What do you mean when you say class what do you say what do you mean when you say i am spreading hate i had a non-white person accuse me of this oh you're spreading hate what what do you mean spreading hate and further what evidence do you have uh, i did that bang bang and got an immediate retraction i stole that right from mr fuller because uh, he said someone did the same thing to him just you know calm down and get them to explain it uh, i have seen frequently White people have a very difficult time explaining themselves. Um, even white people who have fussed at me didn't like what I said. No problem. Tell me where I said something incorrect. A white person recently called you a segregationist, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Is that, is that correct? Uh, I know a non-white person uh, called me a segregationist. I'm sure white people have as well. Um, and that's a term I don't use. Uh, if you've listened to the show, I've never picked that term up. I don't use it. Um, I uh, I just try and stick with racist, white supremacist. Uh, if there's a term I'm going to attach to myself, it would be victim of white supremacy. Um, but, you know, these these are all labels. you got to have a definition attached to them, and the definition has to make sense uh, if we're going to use the term. Um, so, you know, that's why I would say it's important because it, it has helped me. Uh, I think, you know, years ago if someone had done that, I would have maybe got upset or, I wouldn't have been codified if I had to sum it up quickly. I would not have been codified in how to deal with that. Now, just knowing how to pay attention to words and to request definitions, it's no problem at all because generally the terms that people toss at me, they have not defined what those terms mean. And when they do define what those terms mean, frequently they don't fit. And that's no problem either. We just, okay, what you said didn't really make sense, and we both agree, so we'll put that down and we'll continue. Uh, and we'll stick to terms that we agree on. Go ahead, sir. Oh, I was just saying it's productive. Yes. It's productive. Yes. Yes. Have you, I don't know, have you encountered anything similar in terms of just trying to be really precise with uh, wording and, and getting people to explain what they mean when they use certain terms? I have. I've uh I've been called radical. I've also mm. been called uh, hateful. Been told by fire with fire, and uh, which actually I believe can be incorrect because white people do that at times. Mm. There's a for everything. Um, but I've been called a lot of names, and I have found being direct and asking a question specifically about the name, what does this mean or what does X mean? Please explain. Often uh, people will not be able to explain. It's like, well, you can't explain it. I don't know what that means either. <laughs> Yeah. And that's I laughed. I laughed. It's correct. It's correct. Uh just a, a tidbit, sir. Have you noticed or did you notice uh the non white um male from Korea who killed himself this past week? 
I saw some of the details about it. I did not get to uh, study it in detail. If you have anything uh, pertinent to share, please do. Yeah, I, I didn't study it in detail also. I'm sure white people are more informed about <laughs> the situation. But uh, I found it interesting that after he killed himself, North Korea proceeded to test nuclear missiles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe those, I don't know, but I thought those two events may be, uh, may be related. Mm. In that context, uh, North and South Korea is just the, the product of a chess game, if you will, mm. between uh, white people from Russia and white people from the U.S. And uh, Hillary Clinton said something to the effect that these actions need to be punished, and then a white person from Russia said, uh, in quote, I encourage everyone to, to read the, there's a BBC article about it. Excuse me, sir. But a white person from Russia said, uh, we, the white powers of the world, need to stand firm. Which I wow. <laughs> Wow. Is that in the BBC article? That was in the BBC, sir. Wow. Wow. But yeah, white people are making moves, as always. As always. As or always. white people, listen to the cows, listen to the cows. <laughs> Place white supremacy with justice. Wow. White people of the world stand... Wow. Wow. See, if once you start paying attention, do you do you, have you found that once you uh since you've become more informed about racism, white supremacy, have you found that you catch things like that uh more frequently just in in blatant places? Definitely, especially with words. If when you start paying attention to words and understand the power that they have, the words will jump out at you and words are, I mean, they shape our thoughts and our thoughts lead to our actions. And with that said, you start to pick up and be able to understand the actions a bit more, quite a bit more, actually, in the system. Hmm. I'd say definitely paying attention to words, especially. That's one thing I'd encourage all the white people to do is definitely pay attention to words, words, words. And reading, apparently. Reading can definitely. be very helpful. Um, yeah, you mentioned several books uh, to check out, Majihad. Uh, at the BBC, that's definitely not something that uh, I think most victims of white supremacy do not make a routine habit out of checking uh, BBC news articles um, or reading The Nation. Uh, Mr. Thompson, all of his work published right in The Nation and uh, several other news spots, um, I, I would definitely encourage really make an effort to get access to more information, books, uh, newspapers, just as much information as you can get because uh, I, too, as a uh, Gentlemen noted, I too have seen a lot of examples of just blatant uh, racist act. Even on CNN's website, they had uh, information about, uh, I think it was a 50% rise in white supremacist groups. This is with their oh, language. They right. said That's white supremacist. Yes, yes, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Yes, uh, just blatant information like this on uh, on CNN. Like I said, this is not, you know, some random uh, non-white person just rambling off of the This is CNN uh, talking about this. So, you know, become a little more informed about racism, white supremacy. You will see uh, lots of evidence of uh, white people talking pretty openly about what they think white people should be doing, how they feel about non-white people. Um, you know, white people of the world stand strong. I mean, that's it's pretty blunt in my opinion. I mean, you don't get more direct than that. <laughs> uh, another another interesting tidbit I noticed was on uh, Al Jazeera's new uh, website, and they actually have a, a section of the site devoted, in their words, to conspiracy theories. It's actually a link. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it's in the top left. It says conspiracy theories. You can click that, and you can uh, write what you believe is actually going on beneath the surface of hmm. the world. Uh, I suspect it's racism. 
and I've tried to post to that section of their website specifically, and uh, they had a, a prompt that would bar you from posting specific words. And in the past, it would actually list the specific words you could not post. And uh, I typed a post about the system of racism and white supremacy, and specifically, it, it barred me from posting white, uh, racism, <laughs> system, supremacy. <laughs> I mean, everything that <laughs> accurately convey the system of racism and white supremacy through typed words, it would, it would bar you from, uh, from posting. And I tried to do this again recently, but it's interesting. They're pretty white about it. They still bar you from posting those words, but they don't tell you which specific words you can't post anymore. So now it's a bit harder to define, you know, what's, what's the... Uh, what are their their parameters for barring words now? It's a bit harder to define, but they changed that recently, which I thought was interesting. Wow. Wow. Sure. Very this is supposed interesting. supposed to be the, the, the terrorist news network. I mean, come on now. <laughs> wow. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. That's even uh, – that's pretty refined to get to where they just reject it and don't even let you know which words are – not acceptable and, and will not be tolerated on their site. That's, wow, very That's refined. what I'm afraid of, the system getting too refined where non-white people are like, uh, and it's never too late for justice, but it seems like the system of racism is making leaps and bounds towards refinement, just going and going and going. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And again, this is at the crux of my concerns with Mr. Wise. Um, sure. Just, you know, I'm suspicious. Farrell Winfrey, admitted yes, white sir. supremacist, was yes, on sir. the program. She said it would be constructive if all non-white people, victims yes, of white supremacy, adjusted their thought, speech, and action to the belief that every white person is a racist white supremacist. She said it twice. It is the featured episode on my homepage for this show now. She said it twice. She said that would be constructive. Dr. Robert Jensen also said it would be constructive if non-white people were suspicious of all white people. The admitted white supremacist known as David Allen, professor at the University of Washington, it would be constructive if non-white people were suspicious of all white people. No exceptions. Tim Wise does not get a pass from me. I am suspicious. And he should understand that. There should be, really, no white person should take this personal. I'm very much, I hope Mr. Wise does call, and I hope to have a business-like conversation about my concerns, my suspicion of Mr. Wise. I have the same suspicion of Mr. Wise. Actually, that's not true. My suspicion of Mr. Wise is quite a bit higher because I noticed that most non-white people are not suspicious of Mr. Wise. So they I'm even... I'm sorry? They, they, they non-white people love Mr. Wise. They clap for him. I, I saw Mr. Wise at a black church. I don't know what that means, but a, a church called Zion, Mount Zion Church here in Seattle. Mm. Um, the congregation is predominantly non-white, black. And I witnessed Mr. Wise speak in front of these black individuals, many black people, lots of suspected races. But the black people loved him. They clapped. They laughed. I mean, they, they loved the white man. <laughs> and I, I believe he is promoting practicing racism, white supremacy. 
because he did come on the Cows Radio Show, admit to being a racist, white supremacist. He was in front of a large group of non-white people and spoke nothing about the system of white supremacy. He spoke about racism, he spoke about this, he spoke about that, and he also, I don't believe it's coincidental, but he also did uh, attach emotion to an, a white person, his white daughter, just as he pointed out in the, in the curious case of uh, Benjamin Buttons. Mr. Wise attached emotional connection to a white person in front of non-white people, which I found was very interesting. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that show as well, sir. Oh, oh my! I'm, I uh, am very much looking forward to it. Um, as I said, and again, this is not personal. Oh, I don't sir. know Mr. Wise. I have no intention of going to Tennessee and egging his house, throwing <laughs> toilet paper in his yard. I don't know him, and I mean, hey. I know a lot of white people that I'm suspicious of. So, I mean, hey, it's you're not the only one, Mr. Wise. It's a whole bunch of white people that I could pile up on this program and tell them reasons why I'm suspicious of the, really any white person. So, I mean, hey, it's 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 no big deal. It's no big deal. It's not uh, nothing personal. This is the business of counter-racism. And uh, as I said, any white person who's honest, who is really about the business of replacing white supremacy with justice, they will understand. And more importantly, they will not take this personal because it's not a personal attack. They will take the same approach that individuals who work with severely abused children take. You know these children are going to say some wild things. You know these children are probably going to call you some names. You know these children probably are not going to have the best conduct. When they do all these things, you don't take it personal. You already know these folks have been severely mistreated. I should not expect them to, you know, be behaving in a correct manner for them to be, you know, the most well-adjusted people. I should expect them to have a lot of problems. I'm going to do my best to help them solve their problems. I'm not going to take it personal. I'm here to help them in any way that I can. That's the approach white people should take. It's not personal non-white person has any, uh, you know, suspicion, hostility, they're angry with white people, I understand, hey, I understand, I know white people have done a lot of things, I'm going to try and do the best I can to help this non-white person solve problems if they say anything to the effect that they're suspicious of me or don't like white people or whatever, hey, I understand, hey, they got a lot of reasons why they should feel that way, I understand it's not personal, um, you know, and Move right along with the business of replacing white supremacy with justice. Anything that I say, anything that you say, any other non-white person in the system of white supremacy should not impede any white person from replacing white supremacy with justice because that is the correct thing to do. It's never impeded them for practicing racism. I mean, hey. Exactly. 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 But, you know, again, we'll... Hopefully, Mr. Wise will jingle in on Monday, and uh, we'll have a uh, wonderful discussion, business-like, courteous discussion on Monday. And, uh, and yeah, Bill Ayers, uh, no real time to uh, sit around and chat about that for too long, because Bill Ayers will be here on Wednesday at uh, 2.30, 2.30 uh, p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. Uh, that'll be Wednesday for Bill Ayers. So, yeah, hopefully both of those will be constructive programs, get some uh, good information. And, uh, yeah, 
yeah, hopefully we will not have any personal outbursts. It'll be all business both times. Uh, be just yeah. like the Godfather. Woohoo! Definitely. Um, so, I, again, I need to to give credit where credit is due. Back of the bus, Tracy Brown. Black people, specifically uh, non-white people, victims of white supremacy. Both of them were informed about Mr. A.C. Thompson shared that information with me, said, hey, you should go check this out. This guy did really good work. Uh, this, Hey, you should be looking at this. Uh, did white work. <laughs> hey, we did. We did. Outstanding. And, tra- and congratulations. Tracy Brown is uh, graduating. She's getting a okay. master's in architecture. So definitely want to uh, congratulate her uh, hard work, uh, victim of white supremacy, working to do constructive things. And uh, hopefully she'll check out this broadcast so she'll hear uh, the fruit of her efforts in sharing constructive information, yeah. and she will hear her salute for a uh, good job getting that uh, master's degree, get out there and do constructive stuff for non-white folks, and uh, spread information. She read Mr. Fuller's book, so yeah, make sure you're spreading constructive information about racism, white supremacy, and uh, what we should be doing to uh, replace white supremacy with justice. Uh, yeah. you have any... Go ahead, sir. Oh, no, no. I'm, I was just saying definitely I agree with all of those. Congratulations to Tracy also. I know it's not easy being a black person in the system of racism to get a master's mm. uh, in architecture. Mm. That's, that's, uh, yeah. that's something for all victims of racism to, to learn from and uh, understand. If you want to do something, we can do it. So let's, let's end racism, white supremacy, and replace it with justice. Amen. In the, in the shortest amount of time possible. Amen. Yes, sir. <laughs> sir. Yes, sir. Yes. For sure. Let's let's get this done post haste. I uh, I can think of nothing more that I would rather have than a system of justice to bump the system of white supremacy out. So I don't have to uh, rankle Tim Wise any further. He can move on and do constructive things, and I can be doing constructive things. And you know, we can all go watch uh, go watch some films that I won't have to do a counter racist film review for. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Another episode of The Cows. Again, we'll be back next week. Please favorite the program if you're listening at Blog Talk Radio. Uh, favorite the program. All you have to do is click the little heart uh, that's in the player on the Blog Talk Radio site. Uh, if you're listening elsewhere, that's not an option, but thank you for tuning in anyway. Uh, please subscribe if you're listening uh, from Blog Talk Radio. There's a link uh, in blue on the Blog Talk Radio page. Uh, it says subscribe to the cows, click it, put your email address in, and you will get updates anytime a show is scheduled, who's going to be on, what we're going to be talking about, best way to stay informed. Uh, again, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I hope the information presented was constructive. Uh, please check the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Uh, also, make sure you go non-white alliance. Uh, it's non-whitealliance.wordpress.com. Uh, do you have a last word you want to give out to any of the listeners? Uh, once again, I'd suggest that they maintain and continue to listen to the cows. Check out the episodes with uh, Mr. Fuller and Dr. Welsing. And uh, four, four suggestions in none whites. Be precise and careful with your words. Suspect all white people are practicing racism and white supremacy. Do not engage in sex with white people. And do not mistreat other than white people. I'd like to say thank you to you, Gus T. Renegade. Uh, for maintaining keeping the cows going, and constructive information for victims of racism to use, learn from, and counter the system of racism and white supremacy to reach a system of justice. 
thank you for tuning in to the broadcast. I appreciate the uh, support and, hey, all of us doing as much as we can to uh, get that constructive information out and to work to replace the system of racism, white supremacy with a system of justice. Uh, yes. Hopefully it will be done soon. I can retire and we can be doing <laughs> Uh, we can all go play uh, bass and listen to Curtis Mayfield and Man. rock out. What would that feel like? Wow. Without racism? Wow. <laughs> Man, I can I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Uh, <laughs> but in the meantime, in between time, I will be prepping and hoping to speak with Mr. Tim Wise Monday, 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. Pacific uh, the admitted white supremacist known as Tim Wise, alleged anti-racist. Precision with words. I want him to tell me what is incorrect about what I just said. Monday, context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade. Thank everybody. Hit the blog, nonwhiteallianceordpress.com. We will catch you next week, Monday, uh, or I guess if you're, not, if you're listening uh, to the uh, archives, then, you know, check the archives and catch the shows. We'll catch you. Kyle. Yes, sir. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.